I'm not a statistician, but I often find stats fascinating. For instance, the precept demographic report of the Peoria area reveals that our five-county metropolitan service area has nearly 10% more wealthy empty nesters, 12.5, than the country average, 3.4%. 9% higher single female head of households than the country national average. 32% here in, in, in the five-county area versus a, a national average of 23%. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that uh, the average age for men to marry for the very first time is 28 and a half, women is 26 and a half. So guys and gals, don't give up. You're, you're just helping stretch the averages, okay? <laughs> Hang in there. Meteorologists report that last July was the hottest month ever recorded in the lower 48 states, breaking the temperatures set even during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. The average daily temperature, 77.6 degrees, 0.2% higher than, than previous Julys. There were 26 days above 90 degrees. That's why you were hot in July. The word kingdom appears 119 times in the four Gospels in the New Testament. Comparatively, Jesus only talked about baptism twice, communion three times, Marriage and divorce four times, hell 12 times, never once spoke about homosexuality. Now, you can't necessarily draw a straight line between the number and frequency of verses and their relative importance in the kingdom, in the, in the Bible. But if Jesus did talk this much about the kingdom, then he must have thought it would be significant for some reasons. And so today we're launching a brand new series of sermons that we've titled Snapshots of the Kingdom. Our purpose, uh, threefold, to enlarge our understanding about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Secondly, to change how we live as a result, hopefully experiencing more of the real life that Jesus said he came to give. Thirdly, to see signs and wonders among us, because wherever Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, it was also demonstrated. So let's pray together as we anticipate these. Lord, we're humbled at the start of a brand new week. You give us life and soundness of mind and body that enable us to set everything else aside that competes for our attention and give ourselves unreservedly for these moments, saying that we love you, uh, we desire to grow in our relationship with you and in one another. We desire to be equipped for ministry uh, in the world. And so we welcome you to bring your kingdom among us as you taught us to pray. And not just in this room, Lord, but right next door where the vineyard kids are experiencing things of the kingdom. And, and Lord, uh, all through this campus, we, we just earnestly desire that you would come by your spirit, uh, whom you've promised would accompany wherever we go. You are welcome here, God. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, in all the years that I've been pastoring people and reading sacred literature, I believe that the Bible simply does the best job at making life understandable and providing insight for uh, its enjoyment. In the vineyard, we say we value the Bible and are committed to studying and applying the whole Bible, particularly its moral and ethical standards as the rule of faith and practice and conduct as a disciple of Christ. And we believe that the lens through which the Bible is 
best understood is the kingdom of God. In this, uh, in this sense, we, we call the vineyard movement a kingdom-centered movement. And consequently, we need an understanding of the kingdom of God. And that is hopefully what these five messages will begin to offer. Now, Jesus' ministry was the ministry of the kingdom. To miss the significance of the kingdom of God in the life and ministry of Jesus is to miss an understanding of his life and ministry altogether. His miracles proved that it had come. His prayers taught the desire, uh, his, his disciples to desire its full expression. His life modeled a life in the kingdom. Jesus' teaching explained the nature of the kingdom and the parables taught its mysteries. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the parables of the kingdom found in the Gospel of Matthew. You can open your Bible or your Bible app to chapter 13. We'll be spending some time there in the next weeks. Now, in this extended discourse, there are actually nine parables. The first five are addressed to a crowd by the Sea of Galilee, parable of the sower, also recorded in Mark and Luke's gospel, the seed growing by itself, which only Mark records, parable of the tares, the mustard seed, and the leaven. And then the second four parables are actually an address to the disciples in the house. Jesus begins by explaining the parable of the tares and then unpacks four more, parable of the treasure, the pearl, the net, and the householder. And we'll be looking at the, the range of these over the next five weeks. Now, the discourse of parables uh, occurs in what is known as Jesus's great Galilean ministry, the first year and a half of, of his active sweep in, in the promised land. And scholars call this particular occasion the busy day. If you read the Gospels closely, you'll discover that in one day, Jesus fielded blistering uh, accusations from the scribes and the Pharisees. He dealt with his mother and brothers who were appealing to him. He taught this series of parables in the afternoon. That evening, he crossed the Sea of Galilee when a tempest arose and tried to kill him uh, and drowned him. He stilled the storm. And then upon arriving, concluded that day with the healing of the demoniac from the region of the Gerasenes. Now, it's no wonder Jesus was exhausted and why he was asleep in the boat when the storm hit, right? The insight there, I think, is that real kingdom ministry, reaching out to people with God's love and his mercy, his kindness, his help, his truth, unpacking teaching, that's just hard work, and it's seldom convenient. And so we take a lesson from Jesus there. Now, what is a parable? It's not two cows. Sigh. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Rather, it's a simple, poignant story that employs everyday, workaday world. A fig tree in a vineyard, sheep and seeds. A wealthy businessman, two debtors, a lost coin, a bag of money, a man with two sons, a king with servants, a marriage supper, a banquet for the poor. 
Images with which the everyday workaday audience would have been largely familiar and probably right there within earshot and eyeshot of Jesus teaching at that moment. Parables generally make one point that stick in your gray matter like a jujube to your teeth or a, or a uh, wad of gum to the bottom of your soul on a hot summer day. You know, no doubt, if you've heard them once, you remember these parables. Isn't that masterful how Jesus could have done that? Stories have a way of doing that. In part, that's why so many of us love a great movie, a great novel, uh, attending the theater, and maybe even watching a little television. Drama, story, fiction, it just moves us in a way that nothing else does. In fact, I have a suspicion that over the years... You'll remember my stories way more than you remember my teaching. And that's just the way life is. And so Jesus, as the masterful storyteller, uh, approached unpacking the kingdom in these powerful nine parables. Now, regarding their interpretation, avoid trying to make everything in the parable mean something unless Jesus specifically unpacks it for us. And their purposes are twofold. If you're, if you found your way there to Matthew 13, we're going to read, uh, what Jesus actually says about why he taught in parables. And we're going to begin in verse 10, Matthew 13. His disciples came to him and asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to people? So they're asking the question many of us are wanting to know as well. He replied, you're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they'll have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That's why I use these parables. For they look, but they really don't see. They hear, but they really don't listen or understand. And this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, now he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have eyes, they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it, and they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. So Jesus tells us that there are two purposes for parables. The first is to reveal, verses 11 to 12, uh, to the disciples whose hearts are inclined to understand, that is to hear, not as in, as in physically hear the words, but, but attend and really give yourselves to understand what he says, a desire to seek and understand and ultimately to follow. The parables, in this sense, communicate. They reveal the mysteries, or more accurately, the secrets, of the kingdom, things that have been previously not yet revealed. But the parables also conceal. They both reveal and conceal. To those who are not really listening, those whose hearts are not open, or those whose hearts had grown calloused to spiritual things or had already judged Jesus as false or from the devil, as the scribes and Pharisees had earlier in the day, these were just puzzling stories. They were intentionally vague. 
and confusing. And in process, they were fulfilling a prophecy given 700 years earlier by Isaiah that God would eventually close the eyes and the ears and harden the hearts of people who opposed Jesus. Now, the encouraging takeaway for me is this, that Jesus is always willing to help those who are far away draw close if we are humble and teachable and we're willing to uh, allow our current paradigms and understanding of things to be both challenged and corrected. And so the fact that the parables reveal and conceal should not be perceived as a threat if our hearts are open, if we're willing. You see, the, the deal is, if you already know it all, there's nothing Jesus can do to help you. And that's the bottom line. But if we long to see and hear and experience real truth and the real life that Jesus said, I came to give, then God's truth, in its simple and a, and a powerful form of a story, can be life-changing and draw us who are far away to get close. And so if, if you're open, God will use these stories to draw us closer and for us to experience more of his kingdom. We want to be a church family, a church community that's always helping people who are far away draw close. By, by making the things of the kingdom understandable and accessible and real. Not cosmic and otherworldly. We want to make it real and practical and biblical and powerful and fun. So, what in the world is the kingdom? Many of us, while we've read or heard of the word in the Bible, we're largely unfamiliar with its meaning. Let me illustrate. Today, if in a conversation or a magazine article or watching a television documentary, you were to hear the phrase 9-11, every single one of us would recall in an instant where we were and what we were doing when the Twin Towers were sabotaged by that act of terrorism, wouldn't we? And the phrase 9-11 would have other historical, emotional, cultural, and spiritual ramifications implications and memories for all of us, wouldn't it? Now, fast forward into the future, let's say another hundred years, and imagine that you were in a conversation or reading a newspaper article or watching a television documentary, and you were to hear the phrase 9-11. I imagine it's quite likely that you would have no real clue, other than perhaps the Wikipedia version of the basic facts surrounding the event, what that expression 9/11 really meant in this sense you know you, you wouldn't you wouldn't understand the the historical emotional cultural and spiritual experiences that all of us had when we experienced that dramatic act now in similar ways jesus used the the phrase the kingdom of god in matthew's gospel he uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven because it was largely targeting a jewish audience and jews uh, revered the name of God, and so they wouldn't actually never pronounce it. And so they substituted the word heaven, where God dwells, for this expression, kingdom of God. But they're, in terms of our approach to understanding scripture, they're dynamically equivalent. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But Jesus used the expression kingdom of God because his audience was largely familiar with the meaning and the history and the emotional and spiritual implications of the term in a way that 2,000 years later, we are not. You got it. 
In Jesus' day, the audience, devout Jews, looked back with a fond recollection of the golden era of the Hebrew nation under the rules of King David and King Solomon. These were days of God's blessing and his favor, peace and prosperity. But those days were short-lived. Israel fell into idolatry, disobedience. They were eventually carried away captive into exile, into Syria and Babylon. And in those dark days, God would occasionally send a prophet, someone like um, Isaiah or Daniel in particular, but others like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Joel. Uh, and, and the prophets would, would promise that things weren't going to stay this way, that there was a day coming, the prophets called it the day of the Lord, when the Messiah, God himself, would, would come to overthrow all of Israel's enemies. Uh, there'd be peace and justice to all the world, and, and Israel would finally be restored to its rightful place in, as God's kingdom came. Isaiah said that God's salvation is going to reach the ends of the earth. It will be universal and will last forever. So the audience knew that the kingdom of God meant his rule and his reign, his his authority and dominion over all the earth. But their hopes were often wrapped up in what they anticipated as a military victory. In some ways, like the modern Western world, and we, we're not much different because we think of kingdoms in, turn of, in terms of a, a, a largely geographic sphere over which a sovereign rules. The Queen of England or the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia rules over a respective kingdom. And so our, our ideas about a, a military, geographic, earthly uh, uh, sphere of influence are, are largely the way many of the... Uh, Hearers of Jesus' original words were misconstruing his use of the term. And it's interesting that Jesus actually never explained the term. He just used it. He simply announced that the kingdom of God was here. For instance, if, if you uh, want to flip back to Mark's gospel uh, in the first chapter, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus launched the opening salvo of his ministry with this declaration in Mark 1, 14. Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news or the gospel, saying, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near or at hand or here. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Everything that you've heard God promising is finally here. And the good news is that the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, is now present. Interestingly, then, he he never explained what he meant, but he just began to teach and preach and heal and cast out demons. So many in his audience were, were now misunderstanding. They they thought he he was meaning that he was ushering in a a, a return to the good old days of David and Solomon. They thought, you know, that God's kingdom was a military hope and would result in an earthly or nationalistic geographic uh, victory. Jesus, the Messiah, would be king. That's why they were always trying to make Jesus the king, because they thought, you know, territories have a king that rules. And so they'll, they'll wipe out the Roman oppression and a military defeat, and then Jesus would rule as king. 
they, they expected this coming kingdom in, in magnificent material forms and worldly splendor. The apostles were already conceiving of setting up their condos in Jerusalem, you know, and, and having a, an office right next to Jesus as he is the king would rule over this universal worldwide empire that overcomes all enemies in a show of arms. And so they were looking for this kingdom on the outside. And still others thought that Jesus was referring to this time of future bliss prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, that the present evil age as we know it would no longer uh, uh, be. It it would end, and there would be a new age called the Day of the Lord uh, that would be marked by peace and prosperity and universal worldwide joy and blessing as Israel was finally restored to its rightful place as like at the top of the pecking order in all the nations of the world a place of world dominance as God's kingdom dawned. And Jesus set about to uh, change those two misperceptions as he just said, no, the, the good news, the gospel, is that God's kingdom, his rule and reign, is, is now here in ways that you do not expect. Now, the actual term in the Greek, basileia, means rule or reign, R-E-I-G-N the rule or reign of God. But Jesus was teaching and demonstrating that the rule and reign of God was now coming, but in an unexpected way. Instead of a revolution that would overthrow governmental rule and destroy human sovereignties, Jesus was invading the lives of men and women and children. And he was breaking the power of the rule of the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, with the kingdom of light. That is, with the presence of God's rule and reign. He was overtaking territory, but in a way that nobody had ever expected. And, and so in, in the launch of his ministry, he was beginning a revolution of, a, uh, of an entirely different sort with a different manifesto. You can read with me in Luke chapter 4, uh, the, the inaugural manifesto. You know, many revolutions, cultural revolutions and civil wars through history have had a, a motto or a a, re- a revolutionary manifesto. And th- this was Jesus's revolutionary manifesto. Luke four eighteen. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Tapping into those Jewish expectations of the coming Messiah, the day of the Lord. And so he was saying and demonstrating that the blessings of the future age to come, forgiveness of sin, restoration of relationship with God, healing, hope, deliverance, justice, freedom from oppression and lack, peace and joy and blessing and favor, it was all here now that that time has come. It's broken into this present evil age with my arrival. And then, you know, you just look at what did Jesus do? He forgave sin. He drew men and women and children back into relationship with the living God. He healed the sick. He delivered the demonized. He exercised power over nature and even death itself. He restored dignity to broken and marginalized and outcast and and oppressed people, whether they were the poor or the lepers, the widows or women. He taught truth about how life is to be lived under the rule of God. And then he modeled it. 
We're to forgive those who hurt you. We're to turn the other cheek. We're supposed to stay married. We're supposed to pray and fast, not to be seen by people, but to be heard and seen by God. We're to rejoice when we suffer. We're to become a neighbor to those in need. We're to use our earthly resources to bless and encourage other people. Jesus always made it clear that the struggle in which we are engaged is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus came to invade this present evil age, ruled by the devil and his demons, with the power of the age to come. And in in so doing, he touched the lives of men and women and children by attacking the works of the enemy. And that's what they were not expecting. That's why it was so new. They said, what kind of form of teaching is this? Like, with with great power and authority, Jesus is ministering, because it was just blowing their minds. Uh, they, They did not expect the kingdom of God to come in the ways that Jesus brought it. And Jesus was always framing his life and the coming of the kingdom this way. In John 10, 10, Jesus framed uh, the, the two kingdoms in conflict this way. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So he's always indicating that there's a struggle. The kingdom of darkness ruled by the thief whose work in your life is to steal and kill and destroy. And then he contrasts that with the kingdom of light, ruled by Christ himself, God's kingdom, the king of all, God that is the king of all the earth. And his work is to give you a rich and satisfying life. Other translations say an abundant life or real life. Not the American dream life, but uh, a rich and satisfying life where you live in abundance under God's rule. Now you notice there's no middle ground. There's no, I'm kind of on the fence about this Jesus thing. You're in one of two kingdoms. You're being influenced by one of two kingdoms. You're leaning into the kingdom of God or you're leaning into the kingdom of darkness. There's no kind of like straddling the fence and kind of like dealing like, you know, I I have time to deal with it. Jesus frames life as the battle. You're You're in one of two camps and you're engaged in this war. You are in a battle. And Jesus' words and his works and his way of life were demonstrating uh, what God's rule on the earth would look like. And that's what he's calling us to live in, lean into and experience. Now, interestingly, these two kingdoms will coexist on the earth until the end of time when the Bible shows that God's kingdom will be consummated or completed when it's finally wrapped up. And so this is an absolutely unique time in human history. From the coming of Christ, it is first advent that we celebrate at Christmas and and the end of time when he, he will come again, literally, to the earth and establish his kingdom forever. So... The, the two ages kind of coexist. They, they commingle. This is a, a unique time in human history. The present evil ages here, but God's kingdom ages here at the same time. And so in this sense, God's kingdom is already here, but it's not yet all the way here. It, it has come, but it will come too. It, its completion is soon, but it's going to be delayed until he comes physically. And if you're confused, it, it's no wonder. They were confused too. It's here, it's not here. It's, it's present, but it's delayed. They're, they're like, <laughs> that's why Jesus began to teach in these simple, powerful stories to help them more fully understand the nature of the kingdom in which he was calling them to live. And the, the glory is that if we're hungry, 
if we're really listening, not just physically listening, but if we're hungry in our heart and we're, we're willing to embrace the kind of truth that, that God is willing to teach, that God's going to take us from being far to near. It's like transitioning from an outsider to an insider, if you like that language. Uh, if our hearts are inclined to listen, his guarantee in the parables is that you're going to get it. You'll, you'll see the nature of the life he's calling us to li- live more clearly and more simply. And so Jesus is going to straighten out our stinking thinking about the nature of the kingdom in the next four weeks. Well, we hope so. He's going to set our skewed expectations right. Now, every week, I'm going to wrap these messages up with a few tips on how the snapshot of the kingdom that week is going to be a call for the church to action. So I got three I want to share with you today. Tip one, embrace living in the two ages at once. You see, ever since Jesus came, God's kingdom and the present evil age coexist. And so if you feel like your life is a war, that's because it is. Now, many of you probably had that kind of a week. Maybe you did this morning, trying to get ready to come to church. Seems like it often happens. It erupts like like in a, in a fashion unlike any of the rest of our week on Sunday morning. You think that's coincidence? No. No. It's a war. And in this life, we encounter problems, sickness and pain and loss and disappointment and persecution and, and deliberate attacks of the enemy to sabotage our, our hope and our faith. Interestingly, when we experience uh, problems in this life, the enemy often tries to accuse us by saying, well, you're just getting what you deserve. You're such a slug. You know, you've certainly sinned or you've been disobedient or somehow you've brought this upon yourself. But that's just the attack of the enemy to derail us. Honestly, the reality is the overwhelming majority of times when we suffer and encounter problems, we're suffering wounds from the shrapnel of the enemy. Stealing, killing, destroying. We're in a war between the two kingdoms. This is the normal Christian life. Victory and defeat. Success and failure. Answered prayers and disappointment through unanswered ones. Joy and sorrow. Life and death. Breakthroughs and breakdowns. This is the normal Christian life. This is living in two kingdoms. Friends, there is nothing wrong with you. You are loved by the Father. You are secure in His hand. He, You are the object of His affection no matter what you've done or thought or said. You are the recipient of His grace. You are secure. No man can take you out of His hand. You are living in two ages at once, awaiting for the full manifestation of the kingdom when Jesus the King comes again. And if you feel like you're in a battle and being ripped apart and torn and disappointed, it's because you are, but that doesn't minimize who you are as we live in the two ages. And we gather regularly at the front end of the week to remind ourselves of these powerful truths because in seven days, you know, seven days without reminder makes one week. Oh, yeah, there you are. <laughs> That's why we gather regularly to be reminded of these powerful, simple truths. Embrace living in two ages. The second tip I want to share with you is acknowledge that the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet all the way here. It has come, but it will come. It's coming immediately, but it's it's going to be delayed. 
And in a sense, it's normal to yearn for a fuller manifestation of the kingdom of God in our lives. This is what we hope for. It isn't just a matter of, you know, claiming it with bravado. I just claim that and I just believe that. You know, God bless you, but it's it's more than that. It's actually like trusting Jesus to be faithful to manifest in our lives what he said is already here. The veil that separates this age and the age to come is actually quite thin. And it's as if that which Jesus has died and paid for, the, the present kingdom, could could break in at any moment. And the age to come that's already here could be made visible at any moment because it's here. We're living in the presence of the future right now. All things are ours. The Apostle Paul declared it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. Everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or world or life or death or present future. Everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Paul was not stretching the truth. Everything is ours. The kingdom is here. Every blessing of the future is already ours. It's right here. And the veil between this present evil age and the age to come, our difficult circumstances and the joy and blessing of the future age, it's very thin. And and Jesus is encouraging us to lean in and expect it. Expect healing and provision and joy and peace, and protection, and freedom, and life. The kingdom is here. It's not all the way here yet, but press in for the already. Press in for the already. Sure, the not yet's going to stay until Jesus comes, but lean into the already. So, second tip, acknowledge the kingdom is here. It's not all the way here. Third tip is respond to the invitation to partner with Jesus as we compassionately and powerfully extend his kingdom to others. Christianity is not about believing the facts of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so that when we die, we can go to heaven. Thank God for that truth. But Christianity is not fire insurance against hell. That is a very diminished view of the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Jesus intends for us to experience real life now. Actually, heaven is supposed to come to earth. That's what he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. We might be surprised to find that in the eternal state, the kingdom of God actually descends out of heaven to the earth. And we will live, as far as we can tell, in a renewed earth in the presence of God. Heaven literally comes to fulfill earth and our desire to be in the presence of God. So the Lord taught us to pray, bring heaven on earth. We are invited by the Holy Spirit to partner with him in bringing the life of the kingdom, truth and love and mercy and power and joy and forgiveness. We're invited to partner with him in bringing this wherever we go, where we work and live and play and shop and eat and go to school. And so today and the rest of this week, whether you're with your family or your friends on this holiday or your classmates or your coworkers or your enemies or your betrayers, people that uh, you like, people you don't like, people like you, people not at all like you. In all these environments, we're, we're to partner with the Holy Spirit in bringing the life of God's kingdom, the life of the future, to them. Living in the unforced rhythms of grace as a full-time disciple right where you are because all life has dignity. 
99.x percent of you will never serve vocationally in a Christian ministry or in a Christian uh, 5013C or parachurch ministry. And so God's ministry is right where you are. That's his call on your life. And to be an agent of the kingdom, extending his joy and his love and his truth and his power right where you are, speaking the words, doing the works, living the life of Jesus, each of you uniquely completing the destiny that God's ordained for your life. Lord, we just thank you that you fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit to actually partner with you. That You invite us into this joyful, uh, terrorizing, uh, spirit-filled uh, adventure that's punctuated with inbreakings of your power and your joy and your peace and your forgiveness. And for that, we're just kind of awed and say thank you. Uh, we're, we're a bit terrified at times thinking that you actually entrust us with this and and yet, Lord, we know you don't call us to something that you don't equip us to do. So just just come now, even in these weeks, and enlarge our capacity to understand our lives to change and for our lives together to be punctuated with signs and wonders of the inbreaking of the future age. We pray that you take these tokens, like our offering and the lifting of our hands and hearts and song uh, for what they are, like ways that we are trying to say to you, we love you, and we want our lives to count for you. So put your blessing on them, Lord, even those who have a desire to, to give but can't, uh, or those who uh, are uncomfortable and unfamiliar with the opening of our hearts and song. Grace them today, Lord, to, to, to move in the journey of finding greater freedom and in power in, in the offering of these sacrifices in your name. Amen.